Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Student Voice Podcast. I'm Akil. Hey everybody, my name is Laura uh, and I'm from Arizona. So today we're going to be talking about environmentalism, particularly youth involvement in environmentalism. And just to give you a broad overview of what, we, of what we're going to be talking about, our subjects are going to be vegan activism, fast fashion, the environmentalist community, and then the environment under Biden administration. And at the very end, we'll introduce you guys to some youth activists that we've discovered through our research. So to kick us off, we're going to go over two really important concepts for anyone that's involved in environmentalism to understand. First, we have environmental justice, and this definition comes from the EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency. So, and I quote, environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. In addition to the environmental justice definition, we also have environmentalism definition. This one you can just find in Wikipedia. I quote, environmentalism or environmental rights is a broad philosophy, ideology, and social movement regarding concerns for environmental protection and improvement of the health of the environment. So with those basic concepts out the way, I want to transition us to something a little bit more personal and ask, Laura, why is environmentalism important to you? I think that's the question that everybody should begin with when like just getting involved in any movement um, to begin with, but especially with the environment. It's just why does it matter and why does it matter to you in particular? And I think my answer to this would be like, why shouldn't it matter to me? You know, I'm an inhabitant of planet Earth. Our planet is at stake um, and just the nature of our planet. So I feel like when I look around and when I look outside and when I spend time outside, just in the past few years, you can see great changes in the habitat um, and then the environment around just my house, especially living here in Arizona since we've been in a drought for so long now. So it's it's more of a question of why doesn't it matter to everybody and why isn't everybody concerned about it, you know? Yeah, no, I feel that. I think for me, I mean, there's just so many reasons. Like, it's kind of overwhelming to think about as a concept, like climate change and the environment, because like, mm-hmm. For me, I always take issue with like the false separation between human beings and the environment. Like there's us and then there's environment. I'm like, "Mm, Mm -hmm. we are the environment. And like, we act as if our actions don't have an impact. And when I look at like, like you mentioned, like outside my own house or like I mow my lawn a a lot, which is in and of itself an environmental hazard um, because it's not productive use of land. Um, But, you know, in Miami, we go through so many series of like no rain but like Mm -hmm. extreme heat. And I'm just like, wow. Even that really basic non-consequential example makes me feel like, you know, this is not a pattern that was the case even two or three years ago. And -hmm. then when I look at the increasing amount of storms and I'm like, that's overwhelming. I look at the wildfires in the West. I'm like, oh my God, in Australia and Russia. I didn't know that Russia was going through wildfires either. Yeah, me neither. That was a complete surprise. But yeah, I guess it just boils down to like the fact that I want to be able to live healthily and mm-hmm. I want the people after me to live healthily and my family to live healthily. And that's completely and utterly dependent on our support system, which is the earth. Preach. So. Yeah. I mean, we live on this planet and it's as far as we know right now, we have nowhere else to go. So we better take care of it. Facts. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but just to segue into our first broad topic here, which is going to be vegan activism. I think one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about activism and just the movements that have arisen from environmentalism, it's because it shows how our society is coping with this issue, you know? And vegan activism is like one of the boldest issues that there is with the whole environmental movement because it's very double-sided, you know? Mm. There is the very positive side of it where people are encouraging others to turn to their local communities for food, turn to the local communities for greens and, and vegetables and fruits and whatnot and creating a better eating habit. But at the same time, there's the shaming and toxicity as well as the ignorance, you know. So Akil, have you had any experiences like personal experiences with the vegan community? I know that you're vegan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's that's the bulk of my experience with the vegan community. I mean, I haven't really found a community in and of itself. Like, you know, every so often I meet someone who also has a plant-based diet and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But yeah, like I'll follow people on Instagram and like there's just such, with a lot of folks, there's just like this really toxic air of like, oh, you're not like me. You're not like mm-hmm. plant-based or like, you know, you're not raw plant-based oh man, you're just, you're just a murderer. Yep. You might as well be throwing children out the window. Like, and it's like, no, man, I, I really disagree with that sentiment. I think it gives vegans a bad rap and rightfully so, you know, because it's, it's exclusivist and it's like aggressive. And I think in an attempt to like stir up emotion from people, people Mm. would choose really drastic emotional appeals. And that's just not correct. Personally speaking, I went vegan for three main reasons. One, my own health, to the planet and three for um, animal cruelty reasons. Mm-hmm. I went vegan in November of 2018, but I trans- I took a year to transition. Like I, I was like, mm-hmm. it was actually at Thanksgiving, uh, November 2017. <laughs> I was like, all right, by this year, by by this time next year, I'm gonna be fully vegan. So I had all, all I had the ham, I had the oxtail because I'm Jamaican, everything <laughs> that day. And then the next day, I was like, okay, no more ham, no more like other things. And over the year, I let go. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed that ever since I stopped eating meat, I have more energy. It's really easy to say no to like sweets because half of them I can't eat. You know, mm-hmm. there's egg milk and other stuff in them. So I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not having sweets, stuff like that. But yeah, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a documented fact that like, you know, getting meat is a really intense, like a time intensive and energy and resource intensive form of agriculture, but it's not in and of itself bad. I don't think it is. You know, cultures for all of history have been consuming meat and fishing. My issue, which comes to my third reason for being vegan myself is, at least in the West, our food industry is like so bad to animals. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. So I was like, dang, if there's anything I can do in my position and the, with the privileges that I have to not contribute to that, mm-hmm. um, especially because I don't need to, then mm-hmm. I would do it. Yeah, no, I completely get you. I myself don't eat red meat, which means like beef or pork or or lamb or something like that but like I completely get it it's just like it's not necessary and then with um, the privileges that I have and the socioeconomic that standing that I have and that my family has I'm able and I have that choice to not have to consume red meats but at the same time I think about like with you with Thanksgiving I suffer because I'm from Chile so every 
um, Dieciocho, we call it, every September 18th, which is our Independence Day, I suffer through it because everybody's barbecuing, everybody's eating meat, sausages, and whatnot, and having a great yes. time. And it's it's part of the culture, you know? And I completely understand that, that certain people don't want that to get lost and don't want those traditions to be forgotten. But just like any other issue just keep it sustainable and it shouldn't be a problem, you know? And I feel like part of the problem with just any food activism or any act, sort of activism anyways, it puts a lot of pressure on people and individuals itself when it's actually the industries that are forcing us to live like this, you know? Oh, that's that's so true, especially with the food industries. Like, you were, like we were talking about just before, like, the recording, like, the fact that in so many places, just just in the United States, where you'll have a McDonald's on every block, a Burger King on every other block, all these other fast food restaurants that have questionable food practices in general, and they're so accessible. And then things like Publix, not accessible, Winn-Dixie, other supermarkets, Whole Foods, like it's built into the system. Like mm-hmm. not only do like food deserts exist, but like there's a like corporations that have these supermarkets are de-incentivized from investing in neighborhoods that they think are unsafe or unprofitable. And they're usually low income communities. They're usually, you know, people of color communities. And it's like, and so the worst just... part, the worst part is that those communities are the ones that have the most history with the land and the, and the, the cultures around nature and the interconnectedness between nature and, and humans, which yeah. is, it's crazy to think how those, how we are, We've been forced to live, but I think that's a whole other conversation in and of itself, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I think another industry, um, as we move along, another industry that's very much like the food industry is the fashion industry. You know, much like there are barriers, socioeconomic barriers for food, there are socioeconomic barriers for affordable but sustainable clothing products. I One thing I've really appreciated about the fashion industry in the past couple of years is the steady, the slow but steady growth of like secondhand fashion and, you know, like, um, I don't, I forget the term, is it like reloved or something? Like, I forget the term, but. I don't know, I haven't heard. There's this really cool, like, there's this really cool, like, narrative, like, um, but it's just, you know, just like secondhand stores and like, you know, it's becoming more and more socially accepted to like buy from places that have donated clothes, which it should be because mm-hmm. a, I forget the percentage, I'm not going to say a fake stat, but there's a large percentage of our landfills that are just filled with clothes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I know Goodwill is trying to do its best, but a lot of those clothes go unsorted and end up in landfills because they just don't have the manpower to do the sorting. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been good progress with that. And I think just something that the fashion industry has done differently than the food industry is just that it's come into play a lot later then the food industry, like vegan activism and whatnot. So I think as it started getting big, like these past few years, there's also been that awareness of the toxicity that has been there before in other movements like this. So I feel like all the progress that you've been talking about and mentioning is partly in due to the other movements that have so shown us what works, what doesn't, how we should be doing things and how we should be talking about these problems. Well said. Yeah, I, I don't even have anything to add on, on that. <laughs> so I will say that I probably should have started with the bad news and then entered with the good news. <laughs> but, <Dang. laughs> uh, but I will say, like, I guess the biggest issue with fast fashion, right, is just the fact that that particular aspect of the fashion industry pays no attention to 
just labor laws and pays no attention to what Mm -hmm. environmental emissions they're doing for their factories and like the fact that most textile factories are in you know south or east asia and Mm -hmm. labor laws are much more loose over there Mm -hmm. so that that plays into like the issues of environmental racism or more specifically environmental justice um but like neocolonialism and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um yeah, it's all interconnected. And I'm like, dang, my golden <laughs> shirt came from at the hands of something terrible. I don't know if I want to wear this, but I can't afford other <laughs> I know. things. And it's it's so hard to address one topic and not want to address a million other things yeah. um, and like not feel guilty about it, but I completely get it. But I don't know. It's just, it's crazy to think that for so long, everything like this went undetected and we didn't really think about it. But now I'm glad that we're making the distinctions between sustainable fashion and fast fashion. And just like, like a disclaimer, we everything good that we were talking about is sustainable fashion, not fast fashion. Fast fashion is itself, it's, it's horrible. But obviously not to shame anybody that, that's still dependent on, on that because we know industries are at fault here. So, but I don't know. I think these just past two movements that we've talked about just really show the progress that the environmentalist community has made. In, in line with that progress, I think, and this is probably applicable to other movements in general, but that comes with getting more voices, getting more, um, more diversity, and not just like fake diversity where like you have like the poster child on some like, you know, picture, but like actually like people from different communities that are directly affected by the issues saying this is an issue this is how it affects us give us a seat at the table for the policy that mm-hmm. um you know that needs to be had to change the issue definitely i think i know earlier the environmental community was thought to be very and it was it was like very proportionally white much like feminist m- movements used to be and sort of still are but like now just with all the articles that i've been reading and i'm gonna be honest tiktoks that i've seen i've seen a lot more people of color getting involved, getting their voices heard, in particular Native Americans and indigenous people, which is amazing to see because before colonization and everything, these Americas were theirs, you know, and it's, we've been ruining them ever since. Um, But it's, it's so good to see that they're finally getting a seat at the table and not just a minor seat they're getting um, to be part of every single conversation, hopefully. Oh, that's, that's exactly right. I feel like that's a fair transition to discuss like some of the policy that's going on, at least in the U.S., because under Biden, the first Native American secretary, secretary of uh, the interior was named. Mm -hmm. Um, I will include her name in the show notes. I do not know it off the top of my head. I think Um, it's, hold on, I got it here. I think it's Deb Holland. Deb Holland. Yeah, That woman is a baller. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just another, that's just another mark of, of progress, you know? Like, you know, two years ago in the middle of the Trump era, like that would have been unimaginable, straight up and down. Mm -hmm. Um, And even under Obama, such a such a progressive move to have an actual Native American at such a high political position would have been, you know, politically risky. But Mm -hmm. under Biden, a lot of things are changing. And uh, and I I know we keep saying, oh, we settled for Biden and we we weren't happy. And personally, I would have loved to see Bernie and his mittens in office. Um, (laughs) The mittens. Yeah, the mittens. (laughs) But like, I can't say I'm not happy for the changes he's made, you know? And especially with um, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. You got a double minority there right away. Um, You got a woman 
And then you also have a uh, Native American in a position that should be theirs, to be honest. Yeah. All right. So for anybody that is not familiar with what the Secretary of the Interior does, Dev Holland is going to oversee nation's public lands, wildlife, and industrial development. And that's particularly important with one of the first things that Biden has done for the environment um, and the environmental movement, because he said he was going to protect public lands from oil and gas leasing, which we saw right away that first night where he signed to stop all the pipelining up in Alaska, I think it was, right? If I'm not wrong. There is Alaska, and there is also some in the in the Midwest, mm. West and Midwest. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but I mean, just going off of that, I think that's one of the most important things that he could have done that night, just because of how impactful oil and gas is to just not not just our economy, but the environment as well, and how damaging it can be. Another aspect of uh, Biden's environmental plan thus far is investing communities most impacted by pollution. So 40% of the benefits from federal climate investments um, are planned to go to communities that are most impacted. This can include programs that support sustainable energy, housing, infrastructure, and transportation. And this is really like environmental justice at work. I think direct Mm -hmm. investment and the improvement of communities that are most affected, most ignored, most neglected is the only way to go about doing this the right way. If you're not doing that, then you're not doing environmental uh, policy correctly. Definitely. I mean, we think about the communities that are most impacted by this, and we look at the houses they're living in, we look at how much green area they have around their neighborhoods and all of that stuff. And it's it's, it's crazy to see how badly a structured housing is over there and how everything is just covered in concrete when in reality it should be the opposite when those communities should be the ones most protected and hopefully now they will be so another movement that biden has put forth is to mobilize the entire government to meet our climate and environmental justice goals so biden established a national climate task force to coordinate 21 federal agencies around climate action its chair will be gina mccarthy um, who led the environmental protection agency under uh, president obama so just right off the bat we have somebody with experience hopefully that we can influence to move a bit more progressive just so we can get more done. But I think having somebody as chair with experience is going to save us a lot of trouble of having to figure out what we need to do and how to do it. Biden has also created a White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council that will push for fair and equitable environmental policy across federal agencies and an external advisory council that would give frontline communities a voice in decision making. With the interagency council, I think that's an excellent move because although there are issues with like adding to the bureaucracy and making it more complicated, mm-hmm. um, I think the fact that an environmental policy is a priority in different agencies rather than it just being the EPA or just being Department Department of Energy, like no matter what you're doing, if you're the Department of Defense, um, if you're the Department of Transportation, you need to have a policy that's sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the interagency council, in theory, right, mm-hmm. in theory, will be really helpful. Yeah. I mean, everything up until it actually gets done is going to be in theory. So we have to keep that in mind and we have to keep that pressure on the Biden administration so it actually gets done. But I like that you mentioned that everything has to involve environment and the environmental language that we need to use. 
so stuff gets actually done. Because as we mentioned before, this whole environment thing is interconnected to everything. So if we take into account how the environment affects communities of color, low-income communities, um, justice agencies, and whatnot, I think everything would just much be better off. In, in addition to the interagency council, Biden decided to recommit to moving to a carbon pollution-free energy system by 2035, so 14 years from now, which is a pretty tight deadline or Mm -hmm. timeline, and a net zero emissions across the economy by 2050, which is extraordinarily ambitious because emissions have consistently been going up um, (laughs) (laughs) as we we go through. But like, I love to see a tight deadline. um, Mm -hmm. And... I think this is a good point for me to point out, like, I guess some of the nuance that has to come with environmental policy, because as much as there is an extreme degree of urgency that everyone, every political office, every you know individual needs to have, there's also um, the ramifications for people that are in less environmentally friendly industry. So I think as uh, the Biden administration works out this, you know, 2035 plan and the 2050 plan, they definitely need to keep in mind people that aren't contributing to fewer emissions, you know, the coal miners, you know, the people that are working on oil rigs, um, those are people's livelihoods. And although things have to change because mm-hmm. it's not just those people's lives that are affected, they need to be remembered at each step of the way. Definitely. I feel like that's one of the most important issues in this whole transition that we're making. And especially with if we get to implement the Green New Deal. It's just that how are we going to provide and how are we going to make space and um, positions in our economy where we can make this sustainable, not just environmentally, but economically for everybody and not leave people behind. And I think hopefully that's I mean, it's my hope and I think it will happen. It's just as we try to move to a more sustainable community and society, those jobs will open up because we need the technology. We need the work power to be able to implement more pollution-free energy systems. And I think it's just now it's going to be a matter of having to educate people all over again on how to do things, which is going to be hard. But thankfully, uh, we're taking the right steps, particularly, I think, in rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, because now it's a worldwide acknowledgement, um, especially now that the U.S. is back on there. I think once the world gets on the same page, of urgency that I've been feeling, you've been feeling, everybody's been feeling. I think unified, everything will go much smoother. I was so happy when we joined the Paris Climate Accords because I'm like, you know, internationally, the the previous four years damaged our reputation as leaders. Um, mm-hmm. And whether or not we're able to have the same amount of weight and influence, we need to still be a contributing member to the solution. And, you know, maybe maybe it'll help us take a step back from our like collective American ego, at least personally, I think American exceptionalism. <laughs> I, hope <so. laughs> I hope so, right? Uh, American exceptionalism makes it kind of hard for us to see ourselves as anything but leaders, but regardless of what position we play, you know. Maybe it'll be like, uh, I don't know if you've been watching, what's it called, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but it'll be like a whole, we have... Steve Rogers is Captain America. Then we have the downfall with Joan Walker. And then we'll come back better. As Sorry to spoil it to anybody, but we'll come back better with uh, <laughs> Sam. We never know. Yeah. You never know. I, I haven't been watching it, but you know that, yeah, that's a solid analogy, I think. I think you should get on it. <laughs> <laughs> 
So on that note on Captain America, uh, the, the last bit of uh, environmental policy that we'll, we'll cover um, is the fact that Biden signed a presidential memorandum directing federal agencies to make decisions grounded in evidence and science, ending years of Trump administration attacks on science-based regulations. Take a breather with that one, I think. Yeah, the fact that, like Laura pointed this out before the call, but the fact that an entire memorandum needs to be issued to put science at the forefront <laughs> of a deeply <laughs> scientific issue, uh, I mean. Just shows how bad it was, I think. Yeah. It brings it into perspective. Like as soon as Biden was elected, it was everybody. I feel like at least I was. I was able to take a deep breath and be like, "Oh my God, it's finally over." Yeah. But this just brings it back to to the forefront of we lived through that for four years, and we went underwent just not emotional trauma, but like just trauma, trauma with how bad things got for the environment. And I think now that we're finally making the steps and ensuring that science and facts are at the forefront of everything, um, I think is, is going to help us immensely. Agreed. And this isn't to disrespect other people's political views. I think it's pretty clear mm -hmm. where we lean. But when it comes to making something effective, you need to use the best evidence you have. And disregarding mm -hmm. an entire process, because that's what science is, it's a process, mm -hmm. is ineffective and damaging. And like, man, breath of fresh air. Yeah. Breath of polluted air that needs to be freshened up, but breath of air. <laughs> yeah, breath of air nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, it, it, obviously, it's not to shame anybody for having different political views, but it's just science is something that we are taught to trust as, as from the very beginning of our education and to have our head of government completely disregard it for four years and completely bash it. Is, it's completely inexplicable to a point and now that we have finally um ensured its its progress and involvement in in, in the discussion as important as the environment um is very important but as the most important part of this conversation the environment as a whole i think is the youth activists because we could not have gotten here without them so we're going to briefly talk about four really notable youth activists, um, starting off with Issa Hersey. She's an 18-year-old, um, and she's the daughter of Representative um, Ilhan Omar. And she co-founded the U.S. Youth Climate Strike, the American arm of the Global Youth Climate Change Movement, which started in January 2019. She acts as the co-executive director of this group, and in 2019, she won a Broward Youth Award. In the same year, in 2019, Hersey received the Voice of the Future Award, and in 2020, last year, Hersey was placed on BET's Future 40 list. So needless to say, this young woman is a baller. Um, I went on her Instagram and she's going to Columbia. Dang. Uh, so she's, 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 going, she's, she's going places. She's at places. She, she, she's been to places. <laughs> she's been to places. <laughs> yeah. But no, that's crazy. Even more crazy, we have uh, up next Autumn Peltier. Um, she's a 16-year-old um, Anishi Naabit, Indigenous clean water advocate from the Wee'ik uh, Wemkong uh, First Nation on Manitoulin Island, Ontario, Canada. She is the chief water protector, that's quite a name, for the Anishinaabek uh, Nation and has been called a water warrior. 
In 2018, at the age of 13, 13, y'all, 13, Peltier addressed world leaders at the UN General Assembly on the issue of water protection. What the hell were you doing at 13? (laughs) I don't know. Drinking water as I messed up my, you know, basketball practice or something. Damn, yeah. I I know. I was was complaining to my mom that if we could please get to swim practice on time. That's the main thing I remember from 13. God, I'm thankful. Absolutely thankful for people like her, which is, I don't know. Y'all amaze me. Every single one of, of the youth amazes me all the time. So for our next advocate, we have Bruno Rodriguez. Um, so he is the leader of the Fridays for Future movement in Argentina. Um, he's 21 years old and is a political science student at the Univers- University of Buenos Aires. He's a fearless advocate for social change, as unafraid in rallies as on live TV interviews and new panels of calling out systemic inaction by national governments or pointing out blame of fossil fuel industries for pillaging across Latin America. That was a quote from Global Shakers where I found the information. Just want to say, just in case, you know, somewhere down the line, someone's like, wait, that's word for word. Yes, it's the word for word. Okay, global <laughs> Shakers, but just another baller. And it just goes to show that Climate activism is not exclusive to the United States or Canada or Europe, but it's happening everywhere. Young mm-hmm. people everywhere are pointing out the incompetence, really, of political leadership, and they're going ham. Yeah, and I think that just further highlights how intersectional this movement is. Because, yeah, it might be, it might have gained a lot of, of traction in, in the U.S. in the past few years. But, I mean, South America, we have Brazil, we have the Patagonia in Chile and, and Argentina. And those are places that we have to protect because they're unique in this whole wide world. And they, and they make part of a global ecosystem. And to have people like Bruno fighting local fights is amazing. So up next, talk about local fights. We have Amarillana, or Mari, uh, Copany. Um, she was, get this y'all, born July 6th, 2007. Seven. Uh... It's crazy. But this, this young woman is also known as Little Miss Flint, um, and she's a youth activist from Flint, Michigan. She is best known for raising awareness about Flint's ongoing water crisis and fundraising to support underprivileged children in her community and across the country. 2007 people, y'all freak me out, but y'all are amazing, apparently. (laughs) I think each of these youth activists goes to show, besides the fact that, you know, our generation, Gen Z, and the upcoming Gen Alpha, that's that's the next thing. I saw that, I, I just saw, like, whatever. Young people today are more active and more aware than any generation before. And because of that, there really isn't anything that we can't do. The doors open, you know, and, and especially when we have the resources and support, there's so much that we can do. Mm-hmm. So my encouragement um, as a still kind of young person, I'm 19, so I guess I'm a little bit old, is like, you know, do what you can. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be a chief water protector like you can be if that's if that's your prerogative like that's your prerogative but you know you could start start small that's my encouragement always start small and encourage people to do small things as well yeah i think also along with that is obviously take things at your own pace never feel guilty for not being able to do as much as other people everybody has different things going on but i think the most amazing part of this whole movement and for like getting people from all ages and all ethnicities and all cultures involved. It's just that we're able to look at inspiration 
anywhere we go. And we don't have to look to older generations now to fight these battles and to get encouragement to fight these battles. We are fighting for our present and our future. And I think it's the most important thing we can do right now is to look around, accept each other and acknowledge each other and join together in one fight for this. All right, y'all. So that was it from us. Um, I hope you enjoyed our li- our episode on youth involvement in the environment. I hope you learned and I hope you were encouraged by this segment, is especially from um, the section of youth activists that we had for you guys. But hope y'all have um, a good week, a good time, and happy Earth Day from Akil and I. Yeah. Go out there and enjoy the trees. <laughs> enjoy the trees, the wind, the ocean, and whatnot. All right, y'all. Happy Earth Day and have a great time. Peace.